0: We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of John, in uh, John chapter 14. So if you could turn there uh, with me uh, as, uh, as we start our time together. And you know, just to remind you, the last time that we were together, uh, Jesus was seen comforting his disciples because he had told them that he was about to leave soon. And he told them that he was going back to heaven to prepare a place for each of them in his father's house which presupposed then that he was going to come back one day to take them there. If you remember, Thomas uh, asked Jesus how they could know the way to where he was going, uh, which elicited one of the most important responses ever by Jesus. You remember? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And later, in that same conversation, he boldly told Philip, in answer to his request to show them the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, once again, demonstrating his equality with God. And then later in the conversation, and this was the last thing we talked about the last time we were together, Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit who is described in verse 16 as another helper. And then in verse 17, the spirit of truth. And this coming of the spirit, Jesus says, coincides with his own departure. So he's going to leave and the spirit will come. And in this section, we're going to talk about here this morning, uh, he will elaborate more on the significance of the spirit's new covenant ministry. Because the spirit is really what makes the new covenant New, And the key difference between how he relates to believers now uh, versus after Jesus departed is found at the end of verse 17. It's a very significant verse, and we ended with this the last time. For he dwells with you, that's present, and future, he will be in you. That's new covenant, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is where We pick up the rest of the discourse. So let's open in prayer, and then we'll we'll have at it here this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we open the word here this morning. We pray that you will use our time uh, to deepen our understanding of Jesus' discourse, uh, particularly as it relates to um, the the coming of the Holy Spirit. But we pray we would focus in on the presence and the love of Christ and what that meant for the apostles And also what it means for us tangibly in our daily life as well. We pray your blessing on this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ordinarily, we we might uh, read the passage first, but we're running short on time today. So we're going to just kind of unpack the verses as we go little by little. So if you take a look there, let's take a look at uh, verses uh, 18 to 20. And uh, we will get on our way here. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live in that day. You will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. I'm having a little trouble here with uh, advancing the slides here. I think I have it on, don't I? Oh, I have it off. That's why, maybe that's why it's not advancing. Okay, here we go. All right. Well, you can, imagine, you can imagine that despite the Lord's promise, that after he departs, he will ask the Father to send to them another helper, which, again, we know is the Holy Spirit, who not only lives with them now in the person of Jesus, but will soon live within them and will be with them forever. But still, his disciples... "...felt the loss of Jesus' presence." So you can imagine as he's talking about this, how they look, and, uh, you know, the, the, the implication is there, "...yeah, that's cool, Jesus, but when will we see you again?" So Jesus does what Jesus does best, and he comforts them, reassuring them that he hasn't orphaned them, and that he himself will also come back to them sooner than later." And hey, that's great news, but when will that be? Well, some have argued that Jesus is making reference to the far future when he returns again uh, in his second coming, but I think it's more likely he's referring to a reunion that is closer at hand, which is after his resurrection. For example... Two of his uh, Jesus' resurrection appearances, and so we'd have to fast forward here, which we will, uh, uses this very language. Let me see if I can show it to you. There it is. Look in John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came... And stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. That's a post-resurrection appearance. And it uses the language of Jesus came. How about a few verses later, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas were with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So in just a little while, Jesus will go to the cross and the world will literally not see him anymore. In fact, even after he is resurrected, if you recall, Jesus will only make appearances to his disciples and not anyone else. And because Jesus will have been resurrected, his disciples will also possess resurrection life. Now I want you to hear the nuance on that. They are going to have resurrection life in the spirit. Now, this understand, this doesn't just mean that they will be resurrected one day. That is a true statement. They will be resurrected. We all who believe in Christ will be resurrected one day. But more than that, their resurrection life begins now. Right? And will culminate in the in glory when they are resurrected. The same thing, by the way, if you're keeping track of what Paul says in Romans chapter six about a resurrection kind of life because of our connection to Jesus. And in that day, the day that Jesus is resurrected, the disciples will all realize the significance of what it means for Jesus to be united to his father and for they to be united to Christ because they will then, at that time, have the spirit living inside of them. And so once Jesus is resurrected, and this is kind of the key, once Jesus is resurrected, things will begin to make sense then that they couldn't make sense of before Jesus' death and resurrection. So verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Jesus reiterates what he said just a few verses earlier. Only there, it was in the context of prayer. In verse 15, the last message we had, he said, If you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. Well, what constitutes love for Jesus? Is it emotions? Is it affection or being affectionate? Is it shouts of praise or declarations of devotion? How about talking about doctrine and theology? Any or all of those things can be, can be evidence of your love for Jesus, but that's not where Jesus puts the emphasis. Jesus himself says the true mark of love for him comes down to this. The one who has and keeps Jesus' commands is identified as the one who loves him. It's pretty simple, right? I mean, it's not that complicated. These are parallel ideas. Has obviously means to possess, but it means more than that. It has the idea of grasping God's commands with your mind, always starts with your mind, internalizing them as your very own. And in conjunction with that, Keeps indicates consistent obedience. It's not a one-off, right? But it's a lifestyle of obedience. So Jesus describes the one who loves him as someone who will internalize his commands and actively obey them. This is a reminder that you can, you know, um, shout and you can holler, all you want about how much you love Jesus, but the proof is in how you live in relationship to him and his commands. Love is not primarily an emotion. It's gonna have emotion. It, it, it should, right? But um, it is primarily an action. I, I think most of you in this congregation already know this, but it's worth repeating for those who don't. Obedience to Jesus' commands Don't save you. Only Christ could do that. Only Christ could save you. But for those who are saved by Christ, the evidence of that salvation is in the change and quality of life that they now live because of the spirit that lives inside of them. I think this should go without saying, uh, but a true Christian is someone who loves God. Christ. Was that breathtaking or earth-shattering for anyone that a true Christian is someone who loves Christ? But what does that mean? It means what Jesus says here. It will be demonstrated in an obedient life, not just with words, right? I love Jesus. I love him so much. You know, you might, but it it but that doesn't prove just because you get emotional about it and you know and and uh demonstrate it that way. And for the one who does really love Jesus, he can rest assured that both the father and the son will also love him. And consequently, notice again, another time what Jesus says here, he will manifest himself to that person. Again, Jesus is pointing to the near future when he will be resurrected and he will make himself known to his disciples And all this to say that this isn't the last time that they're going to see Jesus. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? You know, this side of the cross, it's easy to understand a lot of what Jesus meant. But for his disciples, uh, you know, it wasn't. They still struggled with the notion that Jesus was going to die, let alone the idea that he was going to be resurrected. We all understand. this, this is easy to understand now, but they struggled with these concepts. So Judas, um, not Iscariot. I, it, it's hilarious how often that the gospel writers have to make that, that qualification, right? Judas, not the Iscariot, Judas right? I mean, it's like, you know, if your name was Hitler you know not adolf hitler just so we're all understanding here right this not that that guy right this is a, the the judas that's uh that's found in uh, luke 6 and acts 1 um he can't understand what what jesus is talking about right remember put yourself in their shoes the disciples know that jesus is the messiah they know their Old Testament eschatology. So in their mind, when the Messiah comes, what does he do? He sets up the worldwide messianic kingdom. So that's what Jesus has to do, right, before anything else. So how in the world is he gonna make himself known to just his disciples while being invisible to the rest of the world? That doesn't make sense from an Old Testament eschatology standpoint. Doesn't the Old Testament point to the coming of the kingdom as arriving with breathtaking splendor and glory? Yes, it does. So Judas wasn't wrong, He's just talking about a different event. So verses 23 to 24, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, at first glance, this may seem like an odd Way to answer Judas's question, but love for Jesus is really the main point. That's what he wants you to see here. Jesus wasn't referring to the coming kingdom, which, by the way, is still coming. He was referring to his future post resurrection appearances, but now, this is important, he goes a step further with this statement For those who love Jesus, both he and his Father will take up residence with them and they will experience the immediate presence of both the father and the son. So this is a further advance of what he had said earlier. Remember, as we started this passage, I will not leave you as orphans. But how is that gonna be a reality where the father and the son is now gonna make their abode with, with the believers? You know, before I answer that, Think about how God dwelled among his people in the Old Testament. God was said to dwell among the people via the tabernacle, right? And then later, uh, the temple, right? But as Paul will point out in his writings, for the new covenant believer, his body is said to be the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. You remember this in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. God's presence was visibly seen in the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament temple, right? And now he's present in our bodies the New Testament temple via the Holy Spirit. If if you notice the implicit reference here to the deity of the Holy Spirit, God inhabited the Old Testament temple, the Holy Spirit inhabits the New Testament temple, right? The the deity, uh, you know, God in both cases, right? But the Spirit by implication here. Paul is simply explaining the significance of what Jesus first lays out here to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And Paul riffs on that later in 1 Corinthians 6. So what Jesus has in mind here is more permanent than his resurrection appearances and will occur inside of the true believer who has a love relationship with the Lord. So in other words, for the disciple... Who loves and obeys Jesus, God the Father will love him and together with Jesus will permanently make their home within him via the Holy Spirit. Jesus is preparing a place for his disciples, as he mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, and he will take them there one day. But even before then, in a very real sense, both the Father and the Son will make their presence felt in believers through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, of which he will explain in more detail in in these following verses. This is an exclusive promise to Christ's disciples. You know, those who don't love Christ, those who don't obey his words, ought not to think that this promise extends to them. You know, as as I already mentioned, the biblical notion of love is not purely emotional, but it is something that is practical and visible. So you ought not to deceive yourself if you are all talk and no action. That's why there's this emphasis here in what Jesus says about what love is and what it isn't. This isn't, by the way, just Jesus' opinion, as if that weren't enough. We are likewise reminded. That Jesus' words ultimately originate from his heavenly father who sent him to complete his redemptive mission. There is no higher authority, Jesus points out, to the words that he is saying. These come ultimately from the heavenly father. Let's look at verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You know, in just a short time, Jesus will be gone. But until then, he is able to teach them these things. So he's still around. I can still teach you. And and there are some things I got to say before I go. But soon, the Holy Spirit is coming to both teach you all things and to bring to your remembrance all the things that Jesus said to them. This is a significant statement about the Holy Spirit's upcoming role. Let's uh, break that down for just a second. First, notice what Jesus says here. The Father is going to send the Spirit in Jesus's name. Don't miss that. Which means He's not a mere substitute for Jesus. He's going to act as Jesus' representative. I'll say more about this in just a minute. But as you can see, this mirrors the relationship between the father and the son. As Jesus often mentioned the fact that he came in his father's name, meaning he came as his father. Father's representative. Now he says the same thing about the Spirit. He's going to be my representative. So what does all of this mean? What does all of this mean? Well, Jesus is pointing to the near future when the Spirit comes to his disciples After Jesus returns to heaven, this is post ascension, and one of his primary functions in the lives of the apostles will be not only to remind them of what Jesus taught, but to also more fully understand the significance of what Jesus taught, of what he meant by what he taught. You know, there were things that Jesus said and taught that took on new meaning after Jesus rose from the dead. And if you go back in the Gospel of John, you could see references to this very phenomena. Uh, take a look here in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Jesus answered them, Destroy the, this temple, and three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty and six years to build the temple, And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And then notice verse 22. This is the main part. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The spirit was ministering to their hearts here. How about John chapter 12, verses 12 to 16? The the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So if you notice, the emphasis is upon the Spirit's new covenant work to illuminate the true meaning and significance of what Jesus taught them, what Jesus said. Right? Even the completion of prophecies and so forth, not to bring about so much new revelation. And so, in a very real sense, the Spirit's ministry is a continuation of Jesus' earthly ministry. Again, He's Jesus' representative. And so, His ministry is going to be about the person of Jesus and His teaching, not to point the finger back to himself. Also, does not this promise have direct relevance in the apostles' role uh, in authoring the new covenant scriptures? You know, if it were left up to their fallible human memories to write about the significance of Jesus and all that he taught uh, for the life and application of the church, I doubt that we'd ever be able to depend upon Uh, the apostles' writings as inerrant scripture, right? If it was just left up to themselves. So it should be kept in mind that Jesus' promise here is specific to his apostles and should not be understood as a general promise to all Christians forever, I'm sorry if that disappoints you, that the Spirit doesn't remind you of everything that you have ever learned in the, in the Scripture. I wish that were true of me. I mean, there's a, I mean I've forgotten so much stuff, and, you know, you, I like someone asks a question, be like, man, I used to know that, you know I, I was, you know? I wish the Spirit would bring it all to our remembrance, but it has a specific relevance to the apostles as they are remembering the, the, the words and the significance, both, of what Jesus taught, and then they would pass that on to the next generation. So John includes this promise in his gospel in order to explain to his first century audience how the apostles were able to fully grasp the truth about Jesus. And so that's why you see this before and after, often in the gospels. Now, I guess I was supposed to click these parts on, huh? but uh, okay. I, I want to make a, what may seem like an obvious observation, uh, but the application isn't always so obvious, okay? The Spirit's adjective is holy. He's the Holy Spirit. Is that, is that a breakthrough for anyone? He's the Holy Spirit. You know, if the defining characteristic of the Spirit is that he is holy, doesn't it imply that his primary effect and influence upon those to whom he indwells is to make them what? Holy. You know, this can only be done by pointing them to the person and work of Jesus. Now, I say that. It might sound obvious, but I say that because today, we often hear about strange behavior like laughing uncontrollably, or barking like a dog, or going into a frenzy, or you know jerking and twitching and, and these kinds of things, being drunk in the spirit, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, um, and we're told that's due to the Holy Spirit, really? Why would the Holy Spirit make you do that? Doesn't the Holy Spirit come to sanctify you and to make you holy? Why would the holy Spirit prompt that kind of behavior in believers. Yet what is it that we do find in the scripture that are fruit of the spirit? Well we all know this, right? Galatians 5:22 to 23 but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such There is no law. So what would you say about a person who evidences these kinds of attributes in his life? Surprise, it describes holiness. So the Holy Spirit produces holiness in the lives of believers. And oh, by the way, self-control is one of those areas as well. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You know, peace was used similarly to the word aloha. Do you realize that? It could be a greeting of welcome, or it could be a goodbye, of which it is here. And you know, when the Greeks thought of peace... Their primary notion was the absence of war. I think that's a concept that many of us would think about as well, right? We would share that notion, when there is peace, there is no war. Now, the Jewish notion certainly shared some of that sentiment, but they went a little bit farther, emphasizing God's blessing from a right relationship with Yahweh, but you know interestingly when the Old Testament spoke of peace it often looked forward to the future when worldwide peace would be the rule not the exception and guess when that peace was prophesied to arrive with the coming of the Messiah right now I, you know, we're running short on time, so i just show you a few of these, but consider some of these Old Testament messianic passages. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Peace. Of the increase of his government and of Peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Um, let, me, let me do a, a, another one here, because uh, a shorter one, because we're running out of time. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes what? Peace. Who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This end time peace that was associated with the Messiah's kingdom, Jesus now says will be yours in the here and now because of what I'm about to do. Now, Jesus makes it crystal clear that his peace that he's giving uh, to them is different than the kind of peace that, that the world promises. This is what Jesus is talking about is an inward calm when your soul is at rest, because it's free from anxiety and fear, because it's rooted in faith in Jesus. You know, in Jesus's day, the Pax Romana, right? The the Roman peace was established by the very first Roman emperor, Augustus. But do you know how he uh, obtained and maintained peace in that day? Militarily, right? Through military might. Politicians and world leaders, they promise peace today, but if only you adopt our policies, can we promise you world peace, right? But at the end of the day, what often happens? Those promises go unfulfilled because they don't really have the means to deliver the goods. So when the world uses peace as a greeting or as a farewell, at best, it expresses a hope, right? Peace to you. Peace, brother, right? Or, or whatever. Uh, wishful thinking. But no one can really effectively bring it about. We don't have the power to do that. Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, will have peace, but not because the end-time kingdom conditions will be present then. No, they will suffer persecution, trials, tribulation, and all but one of them right? The apostle John, all but one will end up dying for their faith. So it can't be because the the kingdom uh, conditions are present. Yet despite all of that, they will have peace in their hearts because they will have a right relationship with their Lord and will come about, will all come about through the indwelling presence of, guess who? The Holy Spirit. As a result, Jesus's exhortation from verse one is repeated, to not let their hearts be troubled or afraid. You know, in that first verse, Jesus connected it to their faith in God, and here he connects it to his gift of peace through the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle uh, pointed this out. He said, peace, you can't really see that, can you? It's all tiny, huh? Peace is Christ's peculiar gift, not money. Not worldly ease, not temporal prosperity. These are at best very questionable possessions. They often do more harm than good to the soul. They act as clogs and weights to our spiritual life. Inward peace of conscience arising from a sense of pardoned sin and reconciliation with God is a far greater blessing. This peace is the property of all believers, whether high or low, Rich or poor, unquote. Let me ask you a question. Are you experiencing this peace in your life? If you aren't, it's not because Jesus hasn't gifted it to you. He has, clearly. Have the clogs, that's the old word, by the way, for encumbrances, has the encumbrances and weights of this world unnecessarily burdened your soul? and crowded out the peace that Christ gives to his disciples? Because, you know, if you're a saved child of God, what is really so bad in your life that is causing you so much anxiety? Has Christ stopped caring about you? Has he forgotten about you? Of course not, right? Of course not. Cast your cares and burdens on Christ, Remember this in 11, 28, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away, And I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Why is Jesus rebuking his disciples here? Why is he questioning their love for him by not rejoicing in his return to go back home to his heavenly Father? Well, the answer seems to be dependent on what it means for the Father to be greater than Jesus. Now that statement might sound alarming to you at first and you know Jehovah's Witnesses have been knocking on your door for years trying to convince you of this very point that Jesus is not ontologically equal to his father right he's less than god he's less than the father but you know that can't possibly be what Jesus is saying unless John is trying to contradict what he has already declared earlier in this gospel. After all, what's the very first verse in this gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, what? Was God, right? The word became flesh just 13 verses later and was manifested among us, right? Um, We were told in chapter five, verse 18, that the reason that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill Jesus what? The reason they were trying to kill him was because he had called God his father, which to the Jewish ears was equivalent to making yourself equal with God. And so they, they tried to stone him. And of course, in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said these famous words Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was what? I am, equating himself with Yahweh. Who appeared to Moses in Exodus 3.14. And an attempted stoning took place because the people present understood he was claiming to be God. And even more recently than that, Jesus said, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. Which elicited more violent confrontation. Right? They tried to kill him over this as well. So it's obvious that Jesus isn't contradicting what he had said earlier about his equality with God, or we don't have a sinless Jesus, and you can all go home. You don't need to be here to worship a sinful Jesus, okay? We're all in the wrong place, if that's true. That's the problem, by the way, when we take verses out of their larger context and make them stand on their own. So Jesus' statement has to be taken in the context of what he's already said about himself. Listen, if I say to you, the president of the United States is greater than I, how would you understand that statement? Would you think that I was trying to say that the president was more of a human being than I am? Right? That I'm inferior to the president of the United States as a human being? Would you all think that that's what I'm saying? Or would you more naturally think that the comparative statement is meant to be found somewhere else? Greater in authority? True. Greater in wealth? True. Greater in influence? True. That one might be debatable, but, you know, greater in status? True, right? Certainly the father is greater in authority to the son. That's what makes the father the father and the son the son. Jesus is functionally subordinate to his father, both in his incarnation and even before in eternity past. You know, many theologians, both ancient and modern, have tried to solve this tension by saying, well, you know what, the son's inferiority is only tied to his manhood, but not his godhood. And so he's Equal in godhood, inferior in manhood, okay? Um, But you know what? That doesn't really work. The incarnation is never reversible, right? And so Jesus will always be the God slash man. And so if that's true, right, that he's inferior in reference to his manhood to God, the Father, that's always going to be true if that were the case. That isn't the case, no, the, the greater is to be found in the authority of the Father. B.F. Westcott, who was one of the great commentators and textual critics of the past, said this in regards to the passage. He said, The I is the same as in 858 and 1030. The superior greatness of the Father must therefore be interpreted in regard to the absolute relations of the Father and the Son without violation of the one equal Godhead, right? Um, I would agree with that. One of the top Johannine scholars today, that's uh, about 150 years ago, but one of the top Johannine scholars today, Andreas Kostenberger, affirms the same thing. He says, Jesus' statement that the Father is greater than he is not meant to indicate ontological inferiority on his part, Otherwise, I'm sorry, elsewhere, Jesus affirms that he and the Father are one. Rather, Jesus stresses his subordination to the Father, which as the New Testament makes clear, is not merely a part of his incarnate ministry, but is rooted in his eternal sonship. That's what means for fathers to be fathers and sons to be sons, a relationship of authority and submission. So the point of going back to the Father who is greater in authority, means he goes back having accomplished the plan of redemption that the Father sent him to do. Now, I'll say more about this aspect in just a little bit, but let me say one other thing first. Think of where the Father is when Jesus makes this statement. He's gloriously enthroned in heaven. Where is Jesus? He's on earth, In his incarnate state. The contrast is meant to be stark. Heaven and earth. So when Jesus refers to going back to the father. He's talking about going back to the place. Where the father is to be found. In undiminished glory. A place that he himself occupied. In a face-to-face relationship. So Jesus will even pray this. In chapter 17. In his high priestly prayer. In verse 5. And now father. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let me go back to that relationship that we once had. Very different than what it is today. So another part of the answer seems to lie in Jesus' desire to go back to his desired position in face-to-face glory. To share the exalted glory that he once had. And this shows how much he loved his father and how much it meant for him to go back to that face-to-face relationship. Now it makes sense why Jesus says what he did to, to his disciples. If they were more focused on Jesus than on their own sadness of losing Jesus, they would have rejoiced. They would have been happy for him to return back to his father in this position of glory. But as we all know, preoccupation with your own problems often blinds you to the needs and concerns of others, right? Let's finish this off in verses 29 to 31. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father rise, let us go from here. Jesus tells them clearly that he's going to die soon, so that when he does, they will not freak out, but instead remember what Jesus said. Trust him all the more, and then continue to believe. But you know, so far as Jesus is concerned, he doesn't have a lot of time left, which means the disciples don't have a lot of time to prepare for his departure as well. The devil the ruler of this world is coming to bring about Jesus' death through the traitor Judas, oh, by the way, whom he has now entered. You remember? Judas is fully Satan-possessed by this time. But notice that Jesus doesn't mention the other players. He doesn't mention Judas. He doesn't mention the Romans. He doesn't you know, mention the, the, the Jewish leaders. He just mentions the devil. Ultimately, Who is behind the mastermind behind all of this, all of this treachery? The devil, right? But Jesus wants to make it clear that the devil has no claim on me. Meaning he could only have a legal claim on Jesus if there were a justifiable charge against him. Well, what would be a justifiable charge against Jesus? He would have had to be a what? A sinner, right? And under those circumstances, if Jesus was a sinner, he would be guilty of sin, death would then be his rightful due, and then the devil would have triumphed over him. The devil, the bad guy, would have won, right? But that's not how it turned out. Jesus was sinless, and thus his death wasn't the devil's triumph, though he thought it was, it was actually, what, his demise, now think about how different Jesus is than we are. Could we ever say, the devil has no claim on me, right? No, we're, even the best of us are guilty as charged, right? We're, we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. We were born in sin, we, right? We were inherited uh, Adam's sin, and we are thoroughly sinful, and were it not for Christ, all of us would be condemned, Jesus's death was a proof that he was obedient to his father's will and the ultimate demonstration that he loved his father by sacrificing his very life. D.A. Carson has explained this. He said, the world may think with the devil that Jesus is defeated by his death, It must learn that Jesus is vindicated in his death and that the cross, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ ultimately turn on the commitment of the Son to love and obey his heavenly Father at all costs. The world itself will learn this either when men and women discover the truth and cease to belong to the world or at the time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord but I don't want you to miss the end to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2:10 to 11. You know, we're certainly reminded oops, we're certainly reminded that Christ's death was primarily a demonstration to the world of his love and obedience to the Father um, before we can say it's a demonstration of God's love for the world. It's an important reminder that everything doesn't revolve around us, right? But it revolves around God. He's the center. So with this statement, we've come full circle. Jesus says the way that his true followers evidence their love for him is by being obedient to his word. And how does Jesus demonstrate his true love for the heavenly father? By being obedient to him to the point of death death on a cross. Listen, this I think is an important point that I want to make. Let's not forget the Father's role in all of this, that he is the grand architect of the plan of salvation that saved us. Yes, Jesus did go to the cross and die for our sins and we must be forever grateful that he did so. And yet, at the same time, it was the Father who sent him to accomplish the plan of redemption in the first place. And so the Father deserves his due credit, and Jesus wants to make sure that he gets it. So yes, we exalt the Son, but sometimes we forget the Father is the one behind the plan of redemption in the first place. So after speaking his peace, Jesus urged his followers to leave the upper room, and then by the time we get to chapter 15, the next time we're together, they'll be on their way to the olive grove where the betrayal will actually take place. Our flock in Valencia has uh, benefited greatly uh, from reading Dane Ortlund's uh, book, Gentle and Lowly. And so, you know, if you haven't done so already, I would encourage you to pick it up and, and read it. Much of it is a regurgitation of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin's material, uh, but really for a modern audience and in a much more readable uh, format. But, you know, Orland's chapter 13 on why the Spirit highlighted an often neglected truth. And this is what he said. The Spirit causes us to actually feel Christ's heart for us. The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible And believe on paper about Jesus' heart and moves it from theory to reality, from doctrine to experience. You know, when we think about God, we oftentimes think about his transcendence, that he is wholly other than us, and that is true. He is wholly other than us. And yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit makes the transcendent God imminent near to us, so that we have an intimate, close relationship with God. That was first done historically in the person of Jesus, in his incarnation, and now it is accomplished through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why our worship of Christ is not emotionless, right? It would be strange if it were, much like if your marriage relationship was devoid of emotions, you know, Howard and Vanny standing there, you know, on the altar. Do you take this man to be, you know, your lawfully wedded husband? I do. You may now shake hands with the bride, you know. I'm like, oh, Are you sure you want to do this? You know, you don't really seem like you love each other all that much, right? It's the same with our relationship with Christ, right? You can subjectively feel Christ's love for you and experience a relationship with God that is more than ceremonial or merely religious. You know, for those of you who aren't Christians here this morning, this may all sound unrealistic, unbelievable. How can you really know God in an intimate way? I can't exactly explain that part of it to you, uh, but I can say it's very real and it's only made possible by the Holy Spirit Living inside of me. If you repent of your sins and you trust in the person of Jesus as the only one who can pay for your sins and give you eternal life and recognize his lordship over your life, I tell you this, he will break the power of sin in your life and begin to transform you from the inside out. And you will now have a desire that you never had before to love and obey. Jesus. And for those of you who I'm speaking to that this describes, I would invite you to do that here today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we uh, finish our time here this morning, that as we think of the words of Jesus and all that he had to say concerning the Spirit, that we would appreciate all of this Uh, understand our own relationship with Christ through the Spirit and be uh, grateful that there is the person of the Spirit reminding us, urging us uh, to be holy, loving you, the person of Jesus, to be like you. We give you thanks for all these things now as we pray them. In Jesus' name, amen.